Welcome to Breaking the Bias. This podcast is designed as a collection of conversations with sales and marketing leaders from across our industry, shining a light and sharing stories of workplace empowerment. The single biggest factor I've seen work when it comes to really making a difference is having diverse teams. I mean, put simply, diverse teams really help to de-bias. Um, so who better to have on this episode than Irina Velkova, Associate Director within the Financial Services Practice at Grant Thornton. Irina, welcome. Thank you very much, Alicia. Absolute pleasure to be here. Well, great to have you here. Irina, you've had a really interesting career to, to date. would love for you to kick us off with a bit, a bit about who you are and uh, your career so far. Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for that, Alicia. Indeed. Um, I must say, in answering this question, I probably have to split my career into quite distinct parts. So prior to joining Grant Thornton uh, in 2015 here in the UK, um, I was part of the Bulgarian government where I was chief of staff to the deputy prime minister and minister of finance for four years. And I took on this role quite soon after I graduated from university back in Bulgaria. Um, And that was a very different kind of public sector, if you like, experience uh, compared to my very corporate financial services, if you like, focus these days. For those who don't know much about Bulgaria, and I promise this is relevant context, (laughs) the the country used to be under a communist regime for over 45 years and it only got a firstly democratically elected government, so to say, basically in 1990 uh, when the communist um, regime fell across the world. And the first constitution that it kind of adopted, which was like a proper democratic constitution, was in 1991. And I, I, this is relevant because um, although I think my, the communism didn't bring anything positive <laughs> at all, in my view, I think if there was a silver lining... Um, that was that I was actually raised in a country where, for the most part, because of the ideology of the regime per se, men and women were pretty much treated equally. So when I was growing up, women, for example, used to work in factories, in plants, in agriculture, in engineering, literally shoulder to shoulder with men. So as a result, I think if we talk about diversity and particularly gender and bias, I didn't think we quite have it the same way back there in Bulgaria as we kind of understand it uh, in, in today's world in, in, in the West, if you like. Fascinating. And I, I bet those two, as you described, you know, chief of staff in the Bul- Bulgarian government and then um, in, in your current role as associate director at Grant Thornton, um, I guess you've got two very different um, working experiences. Um, what, what, what's your personal experience been in, in those, I guess, po- polar opposites in some ways, but I'm sure lots of similarities? Um, wh- how's it felt? What's, what's the diversity uh, piece felt like? You, you mentioned um, having equality and, and, and a different work environment in, in Bulgaria. Can you give me a sense of the differences that, that you see? Yeah, no, absolutely. So again, going back to Bulgaria first, because it kind of almost uh, the UK experience builds onto that. Although we, do ha- we did have quite a few women in represented, if you like, across the business or in government, it didn't mean we didn't actually have, for example, bias, uh, let's say, and that we didn't have any sort of diversity and inclusion matters. On the contrary, I must say, though, I think the, the, the challenge that I pretty much had to deal on a, on a daily basis with before was more something like ageism bias, I would right. say. Yeah. And that was directed equally at uh, both men and women. Now, of course, it's much worse if you are a young woman and got safe if you are even the slightest attractive. 
Um, and I guess that probably exists everywhere to an extent. However, I must say there is a really horrible common perception in the whole of the region and the whole Eastern Bloc, for example, that if you are a young, good-looking woman, you can't possibly be competent in anything, you can't be talented or have any sort of capabilities. And this is such an insurmountable bias that is exhibited, I would say, both by men and women, that the only thing, the only way you can deal with it, actually, is to just accept it and and, and just try and prove yourself and that you are probably three times better than any other men who can do the job. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I was just I was going to say, that's probably equally difficult for, for, for young men as well. And it's still to date in, in this region, which is just bizarre. Do you think that's had the biggest, most profound effect on, on your thinking when it comes to inclusion? You know, having moved into your, your current role and, and I know you sit on a number of uh, different committees and groups, which we'll explore a bit later, but it'd be great to understand, you know, what you think has had the biggest effect on, on your own personal thinking when it comes to inclusion. Yeah, and, and, and that's a very good question. I think actually inclusion is is going to get to bigger and bigger attention actually in years to come. And frankly, it, it's... It, within my experience in the UK, particularly, for example, and in my current role in Grand Thornton, I think the diversity and the inclusion subjects have been so interlinked. Um, and, and I must say, going back to just slightly to the, more of the kind of diversity matters here in the UK, the way I've experienced them, and, and I promise I'll come to the inclusion point as well, because they're interlinked. Is, so as part of my job, probably people don't know, but um, I have to do quite a lot of regulatory reviews which means that um, myself and a colleague of mine would go and conduct very formal interviews to, for example, the boards and the the C-suite management of large financial service companies in the UK. And that's usually going to be only one person on the client side, for example. And very often, for example, I would be leading the interviews and I would ask the questions. And for example, the client being male would answer the question to my male colleague, even though sometimes my male colleague is, for example, more junior to me. And I would say I've had some really bizarre experiences where, for example, you know, I do remember one particular instance where, let's say, the CEO of a very large international company, for example, we were interviewing him uh, together with, or we actually uh, went to interview him with, uh, with a fellow colleague um, director in uh, Grand Thornton, and the CEO knew that he was expecting two interviews, and he met us at the door and said, where's the second interviewer? And frankly, and I'm coming to the inclusion point now, and frankly, I, this would have been probably a really disastrous experience for me, and I would have been really angry and frustrated and probably could have impacted my confidence if it wasn't for the absolute instant support reaction of my fellow uh, colleague who basically said, well, actually, no, it's myself in the arena. And to teach this guy a lesson, he, he, let, me, he let me lead the entire interview. <laughs> so it, it could have been really bad, but actually it, um, it converted in something really hilarious as a, just as a memory. But that was my point. So the, when I joined Grand, Thor- Grand Thornton, for example, obviously I kind of came across a very different environment. I was coming from abroad. Uh, I obviously speak with an accent. I probably still have very different reactions to what people in this country have. And people judge me consciously or subconsciously. And I must say, this kind of amplifies the challenge sometimes that you have to you have to overcome. And the inclusion point is so important. And I've actually seen it from the very positive angles because my colleagues have really shown me by example how they can be inclusive by including me and by supporting me in all these situations that, for example, I just gave an example. So I think seeing it from learning point, as in like how to be inclusive and how to support others in some challenging circumstances, has mainly been my 
my experience and that's what shaped my thinking here and I think in everything I do today I I strive to apply the same approach and hopefully be as inclusive as possible to everybody because we genuinely benefit from uh, everybody's input in any conversation we genuinely want to know what people think and what's their say and, and actually that's perhaps where I come from on the on the inclusion point yeah, fascinating. It's, it really sounds like you've taken that underestimation into a bit of a superpower <laughs> and, and you, you're able to really make sure that you're, you're being leveraged, but also the rest of your colleagues are embracing it. And I guess reflecting on the conversation so far, Irina, you've talked about your role in the Bulgarian government and, and more recently, you know, what, what surprised you, you know, compared to you know, things that you, you thought would have changed at the start of, of your career that are still very much ingrained when when it comes to individual bias, be that age-related, gender-related or broader? I must say what I somewhat still find disappointing is that, particularly when it comes to my career in the UK, the one thing I was hoping is going to happen is that with seniority, some of the challenges that I've been experiencing before, for example, would disappear. That unfortunately hasn't yet manifested. Um, and I'm realizing that it's actually bigger than what's your role and position and title. It, it is so ingrained into people because on, on many occasions it's so subconscious that people just can't overcome it. I, I think I've seen a huge progress, I must say, even for the last seven, eight years that I've been with, with, with Grant Thornton, that at the beginning, for example, there was a bit more of a deterrence, if you like, in the sense of how, you know, women in general are met, particularly for like so serious formal interviews. I think now people are so much more respectful. And even though they are, you know, probably subconsciously biased sometimes, some of some of our clients may be, uh, they now uh, have learned not to show that and actually be very um very polite. So I think we've, we've definitely seen a progress, but I, I don't think it's disappeared yet. I think we still have work to do on that front. Yeah, you, I think you make a really excellent point there that often um, I, I've seen, you know, and mentored uh, team members where we've talked about, you know, progressing up and actually having a level of seniority. Does that give you a badge and does this all disappear? But actually, you know, there's scenarios even Last week, I was in a in a meeting. I was the only female there. I was the, the most senior person in the room, but with uh, six or seven other consultants, advisors to to our business, and uh, you could see that it had to work quite hard to to, to level the bias in 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 the room. We, we've talked a bit about your individual experience. I'd love to shift gear, Irina, and just focus on organisations. So organisations can have such a big impact on diversity and inclusion. There's been a lot of talk around. DNI uh, over the past five to ten years. How have you seen organisations em- embrace DNI? Not just Grant Thornton, but also your clients o- over the past few years. What, what's what's your general temperature gauge? I must say it, it's a very kind of a mixed picture yet. Um, so you, we see some organisations like Grant Thornton, for example, uh, which are doing absolutely great in terms of initiatives and activities to support women and particularly to, to embrace the whole, actually we call it inclusion and diversity agenda rather than diversity and inclusion, which is quite interesting, I thought. So we must not forget that this is a journey for most organisations and that we have to really, we have to really help. And, and support each other, I think, even at an organizational level to actually get to really the destination we're traveling to. And, and there are, I've seen very, again, very different experiences across the board. Uh, 
We, for example, at Grant Thornton have very specific programs that have been put in place, for example, to support women. I personally have been placed on a program called Elevate. Actually, I was on the, on the pilot of it, uh, which was aimed uh, at supporting uh, women at middle management, if you like, to get to the rector level. And the program's been a huge success, and we now offer it to clients as well as, a, as an external product. But we do have that across the board, for example, for, uh, for managers' grades, for example, and even more juniors' uh, grades. Uh, the other thing that has worked really well for Grant Thornton, but I can see that this is what seems to be working for our organizations as well, is the leading by example piece. So, for example, our CEO himself is Grant Thornton's gender um, balance champion. So he personally really promotes that particular agenda. We do have uh, all of our other senior leadership team members championing other specific strands of the diversity agenda. And that then has been disseminated further down throughout the organization. And all other kind of leaders across the board um, are now really familiar and really um, intimate, if you like, with the subject that they simply cannot afford not to embrace the diversity and inclusion agenda. And I think that's perhaps what most organizations are doing. I think where we're really quite good at it is that we have actually put specific um, individual goals, for example, and targets for all of our leaders, uh, leaders across the board, and they have to be assessed against those. So that's kind of giving some really tangible results. And I think this is just one example, but it is perhaps what other organizations can do as well in terms of um, in terms of supporting the diversity and inclusion agenda. Yeah, I think so much can change when it's in people's awareness, <laughs> having that visibility of, of uh, an inclusion and diversity agenda as you, you've framed it in at Grant Thornton just means that it's in everyone else's um, foresight and it, it isn't something that's, that's left behind. You, you made an interesting point earlier, um, Irina, as you were talking about Bulgaria and um, your, your own experience in growing up and the roles that men and women were taking in terms of uh, job roles. I'd be keen to to get your perspective. You know, we, we see a lot of data about you know the number of men and, and women uh, earning degrees, and and that's uh, reached a, a, a level of equilibrium over the past decade. But we're not seeing those same numbers transcend into the workforce. You know, why do you think so few women, for example, you mentioned engineering earlier, are, are earning degrees, but then um, not really coming into to the workforce in, in the same numbers? Yeah. I must say, I don't necessarily know the answer to that question. Inevitably, the data shows that, the, and the research show that actually, indeed, few women get into the workforce. As with many other things, though, I don't think it's one single answer. It's probably a compilation of factors, to be fair, which, when added together, probably lead to that result, sadly. Um, so, you, as, you, as you rightly said, we do have that kind of, perhaps uh, bias at the start that women simply maybe not feel don't maybe don't feel comfortable to get into those workforces because they think for some reason or they've been made to believe that for some reason men are better than them in that so I think there is probably kind of a drop simply based on that particular bias but I think then there are other points which really contribute to that and I think we may probably need to look at a bit more into psychology, to be fair here. And I don't want to uh, use any sort of stereotypes because I think that's exactly the point we're trying to, to kind of break through. But um, there is some kind of a potential in my view that actually um, 
men maybe sustain their interest in, in, in science and engineering and some of those kind of particular fields for longer than women. Maybe just women are interested in different things One and they realize that either very early in their career and they change career or actually when they're just about to get into that point. And I think for me, potentially one of the biggest factors as well, which again adds into the mix to, to lead to that kind of result, is the lack of, of role modeling, particularly in these particular fields. So I think these areas suffer from the same syndrome that many other industries do, such as financial services and, and technology more broadly, for example, um, that we very apparently have many more men in the top positions that, that, than women. And as a result, there are so fewer female role models that women and girls actually can look into so to pursue a career in these fields. And and my view, this is so prevalent in, for example, science and engineering and this kind of exact um, field, because these are usually seen as very critical for human development, survival. And we actually saw it with the COVID pandemic, how important this leadership was. And then there is a genuine need from the public, if you like, for credibility and authority. And I think because how life still is, unfortunately, men still seem to be perceived as more credible and to have more authority than women. And it has to do with a bit of a physical appearance and just how they feel room, if you like, compared to women. And I know this uh, this sounds some kind of silly points, but actually both the psychology point and the physical points, I think, play a huge role when it comes to the aftermath as to or the root cause analysis as to why this is the case. So that's that's what I'm thinking. It's just a compilation of so many different factors that play into the whole into the whole piece. You've talked about raising awareness and, you know, having leaders um, be very visible on this topic and um, this idea of role modelling, which I completely support. But but then just thinking about psychology and, and the, the physical aspect that you've touched on, is, is there anything that you've seen successfully overcome psych- psychological barriers or, psych- you know, sub- subconscious bias in a way that role modelling and, and visibility and, and leadership hasn't uh, worked? Is are there any strategies or tactics that you've seen really make a difference again not particularly with one single answer i think i think where um, i've seen women particularly for example being um, successful and uh, where i've looked into in terms of role models is where they have lacked with a very feminine style of leadership for example and whilst they might have been underestimated at the very beginning, exactly because of some of those physical factors or some of the psychological bias, drawing on their resilience and intelligence, they have actually proven themselves and have become very successful. I think we are still in a situation where we see lots of women leading following the uh, the male example in terms of attitude and behavior. And I'm personally not in favor of that approach. I think we definitely have to change that. And I think talking about role models, you mentioned that obviously I'm sure lots of people have given Helena Morrissey here as an example. And I'm not going to talk about her absolutely impressive and yeah, overwhelmingly impressive, I would say, um, experience in terms of both personal life and and what she's she's done and achieved in terms of supporting other women. But the two things that have really struck me and impressed me when I've met her on a few occasions is first one is how approachable she is. And the second one, how grounded she is. And I think this is the recipe, actually, to your question. When it comes particularly to women progressing, for example, I think it's a compilation of resilience, perseverance and groundedness. 
Because to be fair, I've not seen arrogant women who have become successful, to be fair. Although I have seen lots of arrogant men who are deemed, success, who are deemed successful. I don't think this is the right way for us. And I don't think we need to look that way as opposed, I mean, we just need to find our own path and, and persevere that. Irina, it's all very well hiring diverse talent. And you've talked your, your own experience about the Elevate program at Grant Thornton. And I know lots of organizations are, are really doubling down to increase representation, particularly at entry level and, and C-level for um, female uh, representation in their organization. But you know, is, is there potentially a, a gap here where there's not enough focus on um, providing equal opportunity for promotion, equal opportunity for advancement in the organisation? What, what's your take? I must say my experience with that at Grant Thornton specifically has genuinely been exceptional. So they have supported both men and women in, in everything we do from what I can see, um, including myself. And I think most organisations are now very aware of the need to be very flexible and inclusive so to accommodate some specific needs for example when it comes to women with let's say young families or caring responsibilities or any other challenges they may have so I I do think that with upskilling though a lot of it is dependent on personal initiative and often men seem to be more opportunistic on taking the chances as they present themselves compared to women which may be potentially leading to some kind of uh, disparity, to your point. I do, I do think, though, again, um, organisations can support women in these opportunities, but they can't exercise the initiative instead of women. So, and, and I genuinely think there are two key factors for success, and these are equally valid for both men and women. And I already mentioned one earlier, which is, uh, which is resilience. And I think the second one is definitely initiative. And if you choose not to be resilient or not to demonstrate initiative, you can't really blame bias or any other factors for that. And I appreciate that this may not be really a popular view because it's a bit tough view. But I think the one thing that actually defines the workplace for me is is effort. And I think if you want to be successful, it has to be a considerable amount of effort, to be fair. Yeah, and no, I think you make an excellent point. You know, ultimately, it comes down to individual contribution and, and the, the impact that, that you're having. Um, have you seen any structured processes that work better for women versus men when it comes to um, building building skills, any stru- or different types of learning programs that, that you've experienced? Yeah, and I think, I think the key, I, I think actually on this one, it's probably a very one single worded, if you like, answer. And the answer to that is flexibility. So I actually think on that particular point, the very structured approach may not necessarily be the best approach. Rather, you just need to be really flexible to accommodate what actually works for women and and what doesn't work. And we at Grand Thornton, per se, have done a lot of work internally um, in terms of defining what these opportunities may be that could work for people. And we've, uh, we've asked our own people, we've tested it and trialed it and tested it and tried it again until we uh, came up with um, these programs, for example, that I mentioned at the start. But uh, again, I think it, this, is, this is one that actually requires a very individual approach. And that's the only one way I think you can achieve results because people are very different and they will have to, they will have to adjust whatever programs or structured approaches are there to what actually serves the needs of the particular individual. And that's the most important thing because it's not about actually applying some sort of across the board, if you like, programs. Um, it is more actually 
what are we going to achieve here? What is the outcome of that? Is it really going to support our people? Is it really going to support our women, for example? What can we make for them uh, in order for that journey to be easier? So it's all these questions that need to be answered at the start of each of one of those journeys. And it is there, actually, I think, where the answer is. And the answer may be different depending on the different circumstances. And uh, Irina, let's um, talk about retention. I think retention of female talent is absolutely critical if organisations are going to reach any level of gender parity. But we're also seeing that you know lot, lots of women have left the workforce, particularly over the last couple of years, and partly be- driven by you know, lack of promotion, um, not not progressing in, in those same organisations. What, what have you seen when it comes to retaining a diverse talent base yeah I think uh, again uh, (laughs) with the risk of kind of um, repeating myself I think the sheer existence of programs that support women are certainly very effective tool for um, retaining talent and that is and, and that is because they know that there are opportunities for them there if they would like to pursue them um, that uh, I think an attractive point. Then again, um, th- the biggest point here is flexibility. So we at Grant Thornton, for example, do everything in terms of flexible hours, flexible days, and providing as much support and security to women as possible, so that actually we can retain them in a um, uh, in an environment that really works for them. However, to me, the most important point here is culture. And that's the the culture within the team, within the organization, and actually how understanding our colleagues, for example, of the specific circumstances in which, let's say, uh, women find themselves, and whether they actually create an environment where the female talent can be respected, cherished, and therefore retained, and, and women can flourish. Yeah, I think a strong culture of support for women is absolutely critical um, when it comes to, and I, I've seen w- women thrive in organisations because of um, the, the team culture as, as much as the organisation culture. H- how can organisations adapt their culture to better support inclusion? You know, speaking from your own experience, what, what's really stood out uh, aside from some of the programmes you've already touched on? Yeah, and, and as I mentioned, uh, the, the one point for me, it, or the leading point, if you like, is the leading example piece and I already gave an example with our CEO who is who is championing who is championing that so I think there is a lot of work still to be done for example on on that particular journey but we should not really forget that this is this is a journey for all organizations I don't um, I don't think there is an organization that has got it all right And, and again I mentioned all sorts of support that we provide to our people whether that's in terms of gender whether that's in terms of ethnicity or whether people belong to lgbtq plus groups so we have done a lot of training a lot of educational sessions because that's really important and uh, yeah as, as we were talking about just just now culture is is really imp- is really important i do think though that the sooner organizations get onto this kind of inclusion and diversity journey the more progressive uh, they will be as an employer and this will in turn of course attract much more and better talent and eventually they will be more competitive so the the question about culture and supporting women is I think no longer a choice between whether you want you want to be seen as a diverse and inclusive employer or not but rather it is actually um, a choice of whether you want to be a competitive business and survive or not and I think this is really uh, exacerbated now with with the new regulatory requirements that have just come into place so 
I don't know whether you know, but from this year, for example, uh, listed companies uh, are expected to have at least 40% of their boards uh, women. They have to have at least one of their um, senior board positions, for example, the chair, the chief executive, the senior independent director or the CFO to be a woman. And they have to have at least one director who is a non-white uh, minority ethnic background. And, and these are new requirements which are being implemented as of this year, literally April, um, this year on a compliant, explain basis. But this means that as of next year, when listed companies will have to, to start reporting on that, they will have to explain why they're not doing it. Um, and, and this is critical for any business from, from now on. And I think with the ESG agenda particularly, so prevalent these days as well, this is uh, this is going to take even more and more central central place. So uh, again, as I said, there are quite a few specific things that organisations can do, but to me, it all goes back to, to the broad culture and really uh, growing this culture of, of supporting the whole diversity and inclusion agenda and actually believing in that, which is, I think, the most important bit. No, you make a, a really excellent point there. I think belief um, and, and backing this approach is more important than box ticking a, a particular number or hitting a quota against a, a standalone target. I think this has to be embedded in the organization psyche. Um, th- there's been a long running discussion uh, around the glass ceiling for women in, in corporates. And you touched on there this idea of you know listed companies need to have at least 40 percent of um, their board as, as female coming come next year. I, and I was interested to see that that you're also taking part, Irina, in a project. Um, it's Is it w- Women on Corporate Boards? Talk, talk me through the project. What is it? How did you get involved? Yeah, this goes back uh, quite a few years now because I actually did my dissertation when I was graduating in corporate law um, at UCO on, on Women on Corporate Boards. And as part of that, I did a big research project which looked at what other countries have done more or actually less successfully when it comes to the whole diversity on board agenda. And I actually later even published it as a book. But the data clearly showed that the the only way this actually has where this has worked has been with implementing quotas and uh, at the time, countries, or the Scandinavian countries like uh, Sweden and Norway were absolutely the, the leading ones in that particular space, um, and they had incorporated this kind of formal requirement. And other countries, interestingly, like France and Spain and Italy, have understood their kind of, if you like, uh, cultural specifics, and they've realized that they're really never going to make progress unless they implement this kind of formal requirements. And this has worked, and has worked across the board because they've implemented them for both and also the executive uh, management. So at the time when I was kind of uh, supporting the idea of quarters, the UK was uh, absolutely against it and saying that uh, so much more is going to be achieved by just voluntary kind of disclosures. And we have made progress, but certainly, certainly not the progress we expected. To find ourselves in a situation where today, seven or eight years later, the FCA is essentially mandating quarters, at least for the listed companies. So imagine how big of a difference it would have been if we actually had made this brave step back at the time seven eight years ago and we may have not even had been having this discussion today Irina, um, fintech is a topic that I know is close to your heart and something that you've spoken about. And I, I do often wonder, in a in a more ever automated world, are you seeing new issues emerge when it comes to um, diversity, inclusion, bias? What, what what's your perspective? Yeah, I, I probably have a little bit of a controversial view on that. I must say, I I think the fintech DNI agenda is almost a different beast on its own, frankly. So you take two of the 
uh, industries, financial services and technology, which are already with a relatively poor female representation anyway, anyway, you combine them in one sector, which then by default will be short of women, and then you overlay this with a fairly aggressive growth and targets-driven startup culture, you end up with a huge challenge, I think, tremendous challenge that the fintech industry will be sorting out, I think, for years to come. So to, to be fair, before the fintech sector can come up with any sort of either specific solutions on that front or um, be an example, if you like, um, I think there is a lot of work to be done internally um, within the sector so that they've got you know the credibility the credibility point so you're right to say in asking your question that there are different issues emerging from that um but i think that probably merits a whole new conversation yes yeah we, <laughs> we, we, we could be here for a, for another hour i'm sure um it do, does sound like in many ways the the perfect storm with those three aspects coming coming yeah. together that, you, that you've described arena i'd love to finish on this uh, this idea of inclusion coming before diversity i, I love that grant thornton have flipped DNI to become IND. You know, why is inclusion more important than diversity for youth? Yeah, it is more important because I think this is at the DNA of an organisation, and with risk of repeating myself, I think it goes back to the point of how an organisation operates more broadly, and. I sincerely hope that the goal for the cricket days, frankly, as so entertainment are now long gone because they definitely belong to the past. Um, so we really have to think about proactively and consciously actually how to encourage activities and experiences which are open to everybody and everybody will feel comfortable participating in. And I don't think we are there uh, yet as a society. And, and, and I think that's why the regulators are making a spin on it, which I just mentioned. But uh, exactly because of that, I think it is really important to put the inclusivity point even before the diversity. So a lot of it is obviously educational and, and particularly engaging employees in activities which promote the cultural openness and, and knowledge sharing. We live in a very diverse society in this country, particularly in London. So we need to really learn to understand each other before all, so to be able to be inclusive, which means that we have to be truly curious about others. And, and I think we then need to promote a culture of openness, of, of being ourselves at the workplace too, because being genuinely curious about others means that we also have to open ourselves to others. We have to share and I think it is only then when I think we can become genuinely inclusive as opposed to, to you know, just having the tick box exercise or picking up some KPIs. And it, it, in short, I think the answer to that is inclusivity has to lead because it is at the heart of everything we should be doing. And this actually leads to much more openness and to be more, more open-minded more open to the idea of being ourselves, more open to experiment in general, and and, and most most importantly, um, be braver, be open to be braver in, in how we run our workplaces and our lives more generally. And I think it all starts with inclusivity on that point. 
Fantastic. Absolutely love that, Irina. Thanks so much for joining us. I've, I've really enjoyed hearing about your career so far and getting your take on uh, you, you, you can't be diverse if, if you're not, not inclusive um, first and, and looking forward to, to hearing and uh, seeing your success continue. Thank you very much, Alicia. Uh, thank you very much for having me. Great to have you with us. Thanks, Irina. This podcast is brought to you by Momentum, the global growth consultancy, a female-owned business brimming with incredible female talent. We're actively striving to close the gender gap. You can learn more at wearemomentum.com.